Welcome everyone to Bible Quest TV. Hope everyone's having a good afternoon. We're thankful to be here today and get into our Bible study. As always, we have the panelists with us. We have Jeff Smelser from Exton, Pennsylvania. How you doing, Jeff? Great, Chase. Good day. How are you doing? Doing good. Good to see you. I like that tie. Oh, thank you much. Joe, how are you today? I am just fine, Chase. Yeah, well, good. Well, I'm glad to have you guys on. Uh, we're excited to talk about the Bible with everyone today. You want me to loan you a tie, Chase? Oh, no tie for me today. No, maybe a bow tie next Wednesday. I might surprise everybody. All right. Uh, well, today we have an interesting topic, guys. I'm excited to talk about it. And just for our viewers, if you have any questions or comments as we go through the webcast, we would encourage those. Uh, and I'll go ahead and introduce the topic. We're going to be talking about the contradictions that people bring up uh, whenever you're talking to them about the Bible. Or maybe you've been in the case or in the scenario, guys, where you've been talking to somebody uh, about the gospel, maybe a stranger you just met, maybe a friend or family, coworker, and they say, well, I don't believe in the Bible because there are a lot of contradictions in it. Uh, I, I don't know. Have you guys ran into people who say that? Yes. Yes. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And uh, sometimes, I, I don't know about you guys, but you'll have people when they say that and you say, well, can you name me one of the contradictions? They sometimes can't. Uh, they've just always heard it said that the Bible's full of contradictions. And even if they come up with one or two vague contradictions or vague descriptions of contradictions, they generally don't know much about the Bible. I'm not saying that there aren't people who do know a lot about the Bible who will also say that there are contradictions. But the people that I run into who dismiss the Bible as, well, you really can't believe the Bible, the people that I run into personally are usually people who just don't know much about the Bible. Yeah, that, that's an excellent point. Um, and I, I would encourage Christian, non-Christian, when you hear someone bring up a Bible contradiction or what they believe is one, truly study it, truly consider what they're saying. Uh, don't just accept it for what they said, but dig into it and learn the truth of the matter. Um, well, we're going to be talking about those today. And, and we, want, we, want, we want viewers to, if you are aware of contradictions that you either wonder about, you're curious seems to say this here, but it seems to say that there. How do you reconcile that? Or if you've just been aware of things that you'd like to be able to explain to other people, send us your comments and we'll see if we can address them on the webcast today. Right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. Thank you, Jeff. Um, and also going into this study, uh, we just want to make the preface as well. The attitude that someone has when approaching Bible study and approaching God's word is truly going to matter when we're looking at these contradictions. If people want to look at what they think is a contradiction and just perceive it as it being that the Bible is false, that is going to be what they believe, no matter how much evidence you give them to show them otherwise. Uh, so no matter who you are, we really need to check our heart and think about how we're going into a study like this. Um, so we're going to address some of the contradictions, and, and I'll go ahead and do the first one. Um, there was one occasion where I was studying through the gospel of Mark with someone. And when we got into Mark chapter two, there's the story you might've heard about where Jesus is picking grain on the Sabbath day. I'm, I'm sure you guys uh, will recall that story in particular. And the Pharisees in this story, Mark two and verse 24, they were saying to Jesus, look, why are they doing what is not lawful on the Sabbath? And he said to them, have you never read what David did when he was in need? He and his companions became hungry. How he entered the house of God in the time of Abiathar, the high priest, and ate the consecrated bread, 
which is not lawful for anyone to eat except the priests. And he also gave it to those who were with him. So there was one occasion I was studying with someone who was rather knowledgeable. One of the first things they noticed when they saw this text is that Jesus named Abiathar, or Abiathar, as Jeff will hear say, <laughs> the high priest, well, was the high priest during this time. But guys, is this who the high priest was in the time of David's life that Jesus is referring to? So we look at the story in 1 Samuel 21, to which Jesus is alluding. By the way, just to, uh, to, to be very uh, specific here, it was Jesus' disciples who were plucking grain, and they're being criticized by the Pharisees. And Jesus refers back to this story in 1 Samuel chapter 21 and 22. David has come to Nob, to where the tabernacle was, and he has asked for help. And it's Ahimelech who is mentioned as being the priest who helps him, not aware that he is fleeing from Saul. And David is somewhat deceptive here. He, he lies, as I understand the story, and later feels bad about that because it brings about the death of a whole bunch of the priests, including Ahimelech. And David finds out about it from the son of Ahimelech, who is Abiathar, maybe Athar, yeah. So I see, did you notice how deftly I avoided saying that name? <laughs> so yeah, so, so, so this is pointed out sometimes as an apparent contradiction. It's Ahimelech who's the priest in 1 Samuel 21, and Jesus refers to Abiathar as being the priest. So Chase, how do you resolve that uh, apparent contradiction there? Yeah, that's a, that's a really good question. By the way, if I, if I said Jesus was picking grain, I'm sorry, I, I got mixed up there. Um, I, I think that's a really good question. I, I don't see it, as a lot of people would, as Jesus not knowing his Bible history or not knowing his Jewish history. Um, I'll give one explanation, and I'll try not to muddy the waters with it. Joe, I know, has a good explanation as well. Uh, but, of course, in this story, I don't see it as Jesus trying to justify his actions based off of something wrong that David was doing. Uh, but rather, I see Jesus showing an inconsistency in the Pharisees in the way they put David up on this pedestal. Um, and David, as it says in 1 Samuel 22, whenever the priests are slain, David, his own mouth, says to Abiathar, in verse 22 of 1 20, Samuel 22, I knew on that day when Doeg the Edomite was there that he would surely tell Saul, I, being David, have brought about the death of every person in your father's house. And so David admits that because he went into the temple and because he took this bread, it is his fault that all the priests, except for Abiathar, have been slain. Now, I, if I was a Jew, that's what I would remember Abiathar about. I don't know about you guys, but he would be remembered as the one priest that survived the slaying that happened because of David's actions. And Jesus, I think, purposely makes the point of Abiathar being the high priest here so that all those memories would be recalled. Again, Jesus showing them their inconsistency in their view of David, uh, King David, who made a lot of mistakes. But, Joe, I believe you also have a really good explanation for that. Well, uh, usually my explanations are pretty simple because that's the brain that I work from. Uh, and so maybe just make a, a, a parallel uh, conversation 
if we were to talk about um, some years ago, there was a, a man in New York City who had built a rather large financial empire, and there are several apartment buildings, towers that are named after him. And if I were to tell you that the person that did that back in the 80s and the 90s, I think it is, was President Trump. Uh, and in fact, they're called Trump Towers. <laughs> Somebody might want to try to be picky about that and say, no, President Trump didn't do that because he wasn't president until just a few months ago. Well, technically, that's correct. He wasn't president until then. But there's nothing wrong with referring to him as President Trump even back in his past. And Abiathar does become the high priest. He's clearly identified as the high priest. And so for Jesus to call Abiathar uh, to, to make that reference is perfectly legitimate. We do that in our language all the time. Uh, there, there's nothing out of the norm of, about doing that. And I do also wonder if uh, just as a part of this recognizing Abiathar the high priest is the one who escaped. Is there some sort of foreshadowing even in Christ being our high priest and these very individuals being evil um, and, and wanting to kill him? There may even be something in that. I wouldn't push that very far, but it sort of makes me wonder about, uh, you know, sometimes Jesus will add information that seems strange uh, or out of place, and later on we come to realize that it actually does have a foreshadowing or a connection. You know, you guys kind of threw out a couple of slightly different explanations there, and, and I want to make this observation about when we see these things that are supposed to be contradictions. It's important to consider this principle. I don't have to know the correct resolution for every supposed contradiction. If I know there are various possible explanations, why is that so? It's so because I, I have enough reason to believe the Bible is reliable. I have enough reason to believe the Bible is from God that I'm going to give the benefit of the doubt to uh, some particular instance. So let me illustrate this this way. Uh, here on screen, I'm going to bring up a traffic light that is just south of where I'm sitting right now. That traffic light is, is that a flashing yellow light? Can you see that? No, it doesn't look like flashing yellow. It's a green light, and of course it's a red light. Maybe it's briefly a yellow light between the time it's green, but it's not a flashing yellow. So suppose I said to you, uh, you know that traffic light that's just south of the meeting place here in Exton, uh, or suppose I said to you, I left the building and just south of the meeting place at Exton, I went through the flashing yellow, <clears throat> or I saw the flashing yellow light. Uh, would you consider me a liar? No, because it could have been flashing when you went through it. It could have been flashing through when I went through it. After 11 p.m. at night, I don't remember now if it's 11 p.m. or midnight, but late at night here in Exton, those lights become flashing yellows. Maybe it was late. Or it could be we had a storm come through and power got knocked out and it was temporarily back on. And you know how sometimes when that happens, it goes to flashing yellow before they get it all. Re or it could be that there was a road blockage and they had put up a temporary sign with a little battery operated flashing yellow light that I saw or something. But because you know me, if I tell you that there was a flashing yellow light at that intersection that I saw, you're going to assume there's some explanation. And if you can think of various possible explanations, then that's good enough for you to assume that I'm not lying about it, right? 
And, and it, there is certainly no reason or, or no way to say, based upon just this information, there's no way to say, oh, this has to be a contradiction because there are various plausible explanations. Right, exactly. And, and going back to the attitude we talked about at the beginning of the webcast, if you're coming to this with the attitude the Bible is wrong and uh, there's no way any of this could be true, well, well, no wonder that's the interpretation and the thought you're going to walk away with when you see something like this. Uh, and I think that that merits some thought uh, for us all individually. Uh, just remind the viewers, we're talking about Bible contradictions, people that have contradictions they think they see in the Bible, or maybe that you think you might see in the Bible. Uh, if you would, put that in the chat box or on the Facebook comments, and we'll address those as the webcast goes on today. Uh, well, those are my thoughts on this particular passage. Jeff, did you have one you wanted to do with us? Yes, there's several that um, that I want to talk about here. Um, and I just sent a comment to one of our viewers by means of the Facebook page and put the wrong name in. But anyway... Um, if, if you have, if we have viewers on the Facebook page that would like to send us your comments that you'd like for us to address during the webcast today, we'll be glad to take a look at that. But oftentimes people who think that they find contradictions in, in the Bible like to go back to the Genesis account. Um, and they think they find various contradictions and absurdities there. And there's one that you may have run across. There's several here we can talk about, but one I'll just call to your attention right now is in Genesis chapter 1 and Genesis chapter 2, where you have a couple of different accounts of the creation. In Genesis chapter 1, what gets created on the third day? Uh, I have to sing through the song. Uh, okay. But you don't want that. You know we do. We want to hear you sing through the song out loud. <laughs> I promise you. Plants, the land, the land is separated from the yes. waters and the plants, trees and plants bearing fruit are created. And then, and then man is created on the sixth day. Right. And so, so clearly it seems plants are created before man. And then we come to Genesis chapter two and you have this statement in verse five. Now no shrub of the field was yet in the earth and no plant of the field had yet sprouted for the Lord God had sent rain upon the, uh, for the Lord God had not sent rain upon the earth, and there was no man to cultivate the ground. And so somebody would read that to say there were no plants until there was man, meaning man came first. But in Genesis 1, in the account there, plants came first. So people will say that's a contradiction. You guys want to take a crack at that one? I am very interested to hear your explanation. <laughs> I will second that. Well, okay. Uh, we we did not feel the need for a four door car until we had children. Um, would that does that mean that it, that if you find out I bought the four door car um, a week before my child was born that that I that that's a contradiction? Uh, no, I, I could have bought the car, the four-door car, a week before my child was born, in anticipation of the fact we're going to need a four-door car now because we're going to have children. But it would still be an accurate statement. We felt no need for a four-door car until we had children. Um, but the point here to keep in mind is that in Genesis chapter 1, what you have is a chronological account of the creation. Some people find it strange that you would have two accounts of the creation, but they're different accounts. There's an interesting little expression that occurs in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. In the New American Standard, it says, this is the account 
of the heavens and the earth. What do your Bibles say? The translations you guys are using in Genesis 2-4, where mine says, this is the account. This is the history. This is the history. What do you have, Chase? I'm also using the New American Standard, so it would be this is the account. This is an expression, and I can't remember now if it's 10 or 11 times, but throughout the book of Genesis, and it's translated different ways. The New American Standard even translates it one way in one place, another way in another place. It may be these are the records, these are the generations, this is the account, this is the history. But 10 or 11 times, that's the phrase that's used in the book of Genesis to introduce the next section of the book. And so you really have whether it's 10 or 11, I don't remember, natural divisions of the book of Genesis into chapters, uh, what we could call chapters. The chapters that we have have been created by, by men later on. We didn't normally, we didn't originally, there weren't originally 50 chapters in the book of Genesis, but there were these natural divisions, you could say. But the first one is it Genesis chapter 2, verse 4. And so really everything prior to that you can kind of think of as an introduction or almost a preface. You've got this introductory, six days of creation, then God rested. Now, here's the story. And then we get into a detailed telling of the creation, not from a chronological viewpoint, but from a man-centric, how everything relates to man. Man is what this is all about. God has created a place for man, and he's given man an instruction, and, he's, and he, has, uh, he has created the and – and then we get the details of the woman being created from the man's side, which we didn't get back in Genesis chapter 1. So we have two different tellings. The first one is in the introduction to Genesis, and it's chronological. The second one is not really chronological so much as it's just – uh, a telling of the story of creation with man at the center of God's creation. And, uh, and so the, the, to then go to, to Genesis chapter 2 and verse 5 and say it's a contradiction because it sounds like man was created first. First of all, it places a burden on verse 5 that is not intended. It's not intended to be chronological. Uh, you're making it say something it doesn't really say. And so, no, there's not a contradiction there. And, and what you're getting at, Jeff, is consistent in a lot of the books of the Bible, um, and really in a lot of modern literature today. Um, in a lot of our literature, you can pick up a book and look at the back of it and kind of see a summary of what has happened in that book and what it's going to be about. And then when you dig into the book, you see the bigger picture. I think of the Gospel of Mark especially. Mm-hmm. Uh, it starts off by telling us who Jesus the Christ is and that he is the Messiah. He is the Son of God. And it gives us a picture in that those first few verses about who this book is about and where it's taking place. And then as you keep reading, it tells the bigger picture. So when people come to the Bible for looking at contradictions, it's almost like all logic goes out the door. Uh, they, they, they just want to find the quickest thing that they could call a contradiction and move forward. Would a, would a similar uh, scenario be, again, still in the book of Genesis, in Genesis 25, we have the record of Abraham's death. We turn to the book of Hebrews, the 11th chapter. We read that Abraham dwelt in tents with both Isaac and with Jacob. Jacob isn't born for, a couple, uh, for another chapter uh, in the, the book of Genesis. So then it could appear that that's a contradiction. Abraham dies in 25, but Jacob isn't even born yet, but the text tells us that they dwell in tents. But really, the, the point is simply, we're going to close off the story of Abraham, and so right. we start death here, even though he doesn't technically die until later on, 
but the Bible is written in a topical format, not not strictly a sequential manner. Yeah, exactly. And and we would even tell stories that same way. Yeah. Even today. Yeah. Yeah. Excellent point. Uh, Joe, I believe it's your turn. Yeah. So here's one that uh, come across the before. Um, how did Peter come to know that Jesus was the Christ? In Matthew 16 and in verse 17, the, the record tells us that, uh, that this came to him by revelation from God. That's Jesus' words there in Matthew 16, 17, right? Um, uh, he says that it came by revelation from God. But if you think back through the story of Peter coming to, to, to know that Jesus is the Christ, what from God or in John 1 and in verse 41 in fact the wording there is pretty specific and it then leads to this apparent contradiction in John 141 Andrew has come to know Jesus and he goes and he finds Simon Peter his brother and he tells him we have found the Messiah which is to be translated the Christ so did Peter learn that Jesus was the Christ by revelation from God, Matthew 16, or simply because his brother told him in John 1, 40, 41? So clearly, Matthew and John can't get their stories right. The Bible is a fraud. We need to just throw it all away because there's no way to explain this. Uh, it has to be such. That's the way that you know atheists and anti-biblical people would portray this apparent contradiction. Yeah, well, so I'll take a crack at that one. Um, sure, Andrew tells Peter we found the Messiah, which means Christ, or we found the Christ. Um, but how is it Peter comes to be convinced that Jesus is the Christ? Well, the Father reveals it to him. I would think that at least in part, that's by virtue of the the works the Father gave Jesus to do is, is Jesus' details uh, in the book of John. And so uh, whatever, whatever means that includes, it's, it's not fair to say that that's a contradiction. It's still a fact. While Andrew pointed Peter to Jesus, it was divine revelation that made it possible for Peter to, to know that he is the Christ, the Son of God. Yeah, well, good. Chase? Yeah, I was going to say, and there, there's a difference between knowing and knowing. Uh, and I know that doesn't make sense, but I've heard a lot of, <laughs> I've heard a lot of uh, older men. Do you know that doesn't make sense, or do you know that doesn't make sense? Oh, I, I know it makes sense. How does that, how does that sound? <laughs> but I'll, I'll tell you guys what, uh, what I've been told by a lot of older men who are, who are much more wise and been married much longer than me. They say, I didn't love my wife like I did. Well, I didn't love my, my wife like I do now. Uh, are they saying they didn't love their wife when they first got married? No, that's not what they're saying. But they really love their wife now. They've learned more about it. And I would say the same thing about myself, but I've only been married a year. But yeah, that's my point. I, I, I would say the same thing too. Jeff, would, would you chime in there? Yes, but I'm, I'm trying to figure out does – well, never mind. I, just, <laughs> I was going to try to give Chase a hard time. Um, okay. Yeah, Chase, so maybe to, to make this uh, connection – when did you come to know that your wife loves you? Um, when did you know that? Probably on her 
third or fourth date when uh, we were just spending wow. time together and we were making sacrifices to spend time together. Yeah. And now, now that you are married, have you come to know that she loves you even stronger, greater confidence in that? Oh, yes. I mean, just the, fact, just the fact that she said, I do, I think is pretty amazing. Yeah. And we moved eight or nine hours away from our home. Right. Yeah. And, and, you know, this apparent contradiction of Matthew 16 and John 1 can, can be really illustrated to end that way. Uh, and uh, I'll, that marriage is a good segue. Um, so in John 2, you have the water turned to wine story at the marriage feast. And the text tells us in verse 11, this beginning of signs Jesus did in Cana of Galilee and manifested his glory and his disciples believed in him. And then we get on down a little bit further in the text. And in verse 22, now therefore when he had risen from the dead, and so John is thinking way down the road, this is being inserted, when, when he had, Jesus had been risen from the dead, his disciples remembered that he had said the, this to them, and they believed the scripture and the word that Jesus had said. Well, you know, they believe him in John 1, but they believe him in John 2, 11, but then they believe him, according to John 2, 22, there at the resurrection is the ultimate proof of that. And so belief is something that grows. Another verse to put along with that is John 6 and verse 69 at the multiplication of the bread and the fish. One of the statements that, again, Peter makes, also we have, uh, John 6, 69, also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And so they believed, they believed, and then they believed. And there's, there's no contradiction at all in that. You know, Andrew had pointed that out to him. He had some realization, acknowledgement of that. But then through the miracles, like Jeff talked about, through the things that the Father did uh, through Jesus, through his words, uh, through his compassion, all of the things that he witnessed that came through revelation of God, therefore, Matthew 16 would show this sort of cap, all caps believe. Well, our Facebook comments have kind of gone off on the whole marriage thing. If we can, if we can bring this discussion back to these contradictions, Chase, I've got another one. If you, if you're so inclined to entertain another one. I would uh, hang on one second. I do just want to mention too, Joe, uh, what comes to mind along this lines to Peter and, and it's people see these as contradictions, contradictions, but we see the beauty in these. In Mark 9, on the mountain of transfiguration, Peter he is, even says, he did not know what to answer, for they became terrified. And, of course, that's when he was wanting to make the three tabernacles. But in his very epistles in second, or in, uh, yeah, second Peter 1, we see he understands what was happening then. Right. He exactly. totally didn't understand what was happening at the moment, but he later understood. Um, go ahead, Jeff. So there's a website, there's several websites I'm sure you could find, but there's a skeptic, some skeptic group or organization has a website up where they list what they think are various contradictions. And um, what their point is, of course, is the Bible is not reliable. Uh, and one of the things that they say is this, in connection with Genesis chapters 1, verses 3 through 5, which uh, 
is, and in verses 14 through 19, uh, describing the six days of creation, they say this, there was light, quote, night and day, in quote, right? this whole thing is a quote from them, but they put night and day in quotation marks here. They say there was light, night and day, before there was sun, before there was a sun. And then they have this comment, note, if there were no sun, there would be no night or day. Also, light from the newly created heavenly body seems to have reached the earth instantaneously, though now it takes thousands or millions of years. This is an interesting one, because if you, if you have studied the Bible thoroughly enough to become convinced it is the product of God, it is the word of God, then when you come to this passage in Genesis chapter 1, rather than saying, well, that's not possible, you say, wow, God is telling me something there. It does say in Genesis chapter 1 and starting in verse 3, God said, let there be light, and there was light, and God saw that the light was good, and the good, and God separated the light from the darkness, and God called the light day, and the darkness he called night, and there was evening, and there was morning one day. And then we come down to verse 14, where it's describing the fourth day of creation. And God said, let there be lights in the expanse of the heavens to separate the day from the night and let them be for signs and for seasons and for days and for years. And let them be for lights in the expanse of the heavens to give light on the earth. And it was so. And God made the two great lights, the greater light to govern the day and the lesser light to govern the night. And he made the stars also. Of course, the greater light would be what? <clears throat> That's a question for you guys. Greater light. This is easy. You guys can come up with this. The sun. <laughs> the sun. And so if the sun is created on the fourth day, how do we have day and night on the first day? Let's just a little bit of physics and astronomy here, or just basically what your two-year-old knows. We have night and day because the earth rotates with respect to the sun. And so it's day right now where I am because we're facing the sun. And as the earth rotates, it'll be night. So how can you have night and day without the sun? And so these guys are saying that's, that's a contradiction. But if I've come to believe, you know what? I see sufficient evidence for believing the Bible is the word of God. Then just like you guys would say, when I say I went through a flashing yellow light there at that intersection, you go, hmm, Jeff, is, he, he tells the truth. There, he, that must tell me something about what was going on at that intersection. Here in Genesis chapter 1, this tells me about God's ability to put light here that will later on be coming from the sun. God is the source of light. He can create light. He can put light here without it having come from the sun. And he can put light here that eventually will be coming from the stars. But he can put the light that would be coming from the stars here as if it had come from the star before he even makes the star. And that answers a, a problem when people start looking at the earth and saying, or start looking at the Bible and saying, you know, in the Bible, it sounds like the earth is not that old, but, and the universe is not that old. But when we look at these stars, say the Andromeda galaxy, a whole galaxy is two and a half million light years away, meaning for us to see it, we have to wait two and a half million years for the light to get here for us to see it, which we suppose means that had to be there two and a half million years ago. But what this is telling us in Genesis 1 is no, God can put the light here before he creates the thing from which the light will eventually come. Let me ask you guys a question. Why would God do that? 
Why would God create the light so that we can see the stars and not have to wait for that light to travel here from the stars? Why would he do that? I got two ideas. One of the things is it shows his power and his glory. That was my answer. The 19th Psalm in verse 1. And, and I'll flip over there real quickly, but the 19th Psalm says, the heavens declare the glory of God and the, oh, I can't quote it. Uh, the heavens are telling of the glory of God and their expanse is declaring the work of his hands. God intends for man to be able to look up at the night sky and say, whoever made that is, is awesome. You see his power and divinity in the things that are made. Now, I suppose God could have created man and said, hey, you know, in a few thousand years, and even more in a few hundred thousand years, you'll be able to see how great I am when some starlight gets there. But God wants man to be able to understand that right away, and he makes it possible for man to see that. Here's another one. What has man used starlight for in a practical way for centuries? Navigation. Navigation. When man figured out he could navigate by the stars, he could navigate the seas by the stars, do you think God was up in heaven going, wow, look at that. They're, they're making sextons and navigating by the stars. Who'd ever thought of that? Or do you think that God intended for man to be able to do that? And if God intended man to be able to do that, then would he not have created it in such a way that man can see that starlight. Throughout the book of Genesis, we have the picture of a, 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 a world, not only an earth, but a cosmos that is ready to function. And, and so when the skeptic comes to this and he says, well, that's not possible, he's, he's missing out on an opportunity to learn something about what is possible, what God did, tell him something about creation. And so the way that these things could only be a contradiction is if you can only spell God with a small g. Yeah. You know, it, it, the, the fact that we're talking about God doing these things means that we're not limited to our understanding of physics or time uh, and so forth. So we got several comments from viewers here, Nick Crumrice says, Adam and Eve were fully grown, as with all creation, the chicken came first. But I like that. You know, but that's another example. When God created Adam and Eve, he didn't create babies. He didn't create a little baby girl and say, uh, Adam, it's not good for man to be alone. Here, take this weak old baby girl. Uh, and someday she'll make a wonderful wife. Um, he says the chicken came first. You know, people say, which came first, the chicken or the egg? God created not eggs that would eventually hatch into chickens. He would have sat on them. Of course, God could have taken care of that if he wanted to, but just the same, he could create fully grown chickens. Uh, Nick Crumrice said, Mike says, maybe, maybe not. I'm not sure what Mike is commenting on. Uh, Nick Crumrice says the trees in the Garden of Eden had rings. I don't know that we know that, but I would imagine they did. Uh, God created trees that were trees and rings not only show the age of a tree, but they're part of the function of a tree. So if you cut down a tree that God had just newly created, would it have had rings like trees we see today? Probably. But going back to the light idea and the skeptics idea that you couldn't have day and night before the sun was created. She quotes Revelation 21 verse 23 in the heavenly city. There is no need for and it just disappeared. I was reading it, and it disappeared mid-sentence. mid, mid 
was reading it and it went away. It made I think the idea in the text is there's no need for sun or moon because God is our light. Right. That, that's the point of the text. All right. Very good. Well, uh, I think you guys have brought up some really, really good ones. Um, we have about, let's see here, how much time we got left. We've got about 10 minutes left. I'll bring up another one uh, that I have found. Um, I found this one on the internet, uh, maybe one of the similar sites you guys were looking at. Um, but it deals with the idea of circumcision. Um, of course, uh, that would be in Leviticus 12.3, when God commands uh, that they shall be uh, circumcised. Leviticus, uh, I should be able to quote it because it's such a short passage. Leviticus 12.3, which says, uh, On the eighth day of the, fl- uh, the flesh of his foreskin shall be circumcised. And you can also look at Genesis 17 uh, for similar commands from God. But when you get to the New Testament, what do we see about circumcision, especially post the book of Acts? Uh, what do we see the apostles having to deal with? Uh, I'm sorry, Chase. I was, I was monitoring the Facebook comment section. You're asking about circumcision and what the apostles had to deal with? The, yeah, what, what did they say about circumcision? Later? talking about the idea when, when the um, Jewish believers... Uh, when there started to be Gentile converts, the Jewish believers were insisting the Gentile converts be circumcised. Yeah, and how did the apostles handle that? What did Paul oftentimes tell the Jews? Well, particularly Acts 15, amongst other passages, the, the Gentiles were not required to be circumcised. Yeah, exactly, and that, that's exactly what I'm getting at. You go from the Old Testament where God said they need to be circumcised, and then you go to the New Testament where no, you don't have to be circumcised in order to serve God anymore. And I found that online as what they called a contradiction to the Bible. Um, Where's the beauty in not having to be circumcised religiously or for the sake of God anymore? Where's the beauty at in that? Well, I think it's in the spiritual application. I think in particular about passages like Colossians 2.11 is the one that comes to mind uh, offhand. Uh, Colossians 2.11 I'll back up to verse 9. For in him all the fullness of deity dwells in bodily form, and in him you have been made complete, and he is the head over all rule and authority. And in him you were also circumcised with a circumcision made without hands, in the removal of the body of the flesh by the circumcision of Christ. Of course, circumcision literally means a cutting around. And you see the spiritual circumcision that the Christian is going to go through. So it's no longer a physical circumcision, but it is, in fact, a spiritual circumcision. Now, is this a contradiction, or is this a beautiful picture? You know, we see a lot of these things from skeptics where they'll point to something in the Old Testament, and they say, if you're going to follow the Bible, why don't you go back and do that that's, that's commanded in the Old Testament? And that really shows just, just a little bit of it's just a lot of ignorance and a little bit of arrogance in that they're willing to to be so critical of something they don't they don't understand and haven't tried to understand. You don't have to read very much in in the Bible before you you don't have to read very much in the New Testament before you get a pretty clear picture that what you're just saying that many of the laws in the Old Testament were outward physical laws or pertain to outward physical things. They foreshadowed spiritual realities that were coming in Christ. And once we have the spiritual reality, those those educational devices, the outward physical things, the laws that pertain to 
outward physical things, the burning of incense, the physical circumcision are, are no longer necessary. Yeah, that's exactly right. And we can truly see the beauty in that in God's manifold plan uh, for us and uh, worshiping him in spirit today. Uh, any, any other comments on that, Joe? Well, uh, not on that one, but maybe just another uh, uh, apparent contradiction. Sometimes people uh, uh, kind of get concerned about, and I can remember early on as a Christian uh, that people would point some of these things out to me, and they, they bothered me. I didn't have an answer for them. Uh, finally came uh, to, to have peace because I realized that there are just literally millions of things that I don't have the answer for. Um, uh, so uh, I don't need the answer for all, all of these things. But one of the places that seem to be rather common is to find contradictions in dealing with uh, numbers. Uh, Not the book of numbers, but just various numbers in the Bible. Uh, One example of that might be the the men that David had with him. In 2 Samuel 23, it talks about how he had 800 men with him. But then the parallel passage in 1 Chronicles 11, I believe, says that he had 300 with him. And so was it 800 or was it 300? I mean, five, losing 500 men seems pretty significant, you know. That, that's, a, that's a really big uh, contradiction, uh, so it would seem. And there have been numerous times, especially when uh, uh, I'm dealing with people that come from different cultures and different societies, that they'll write a number down, and I have to ask them, is that seven or is that one? Because sometimes people will put on their number one a little flag kind of at the top of that, and it sort of looks like a seven there. Uh, And so I'll ask for clarification. Is that a seven or is that a one? And it's not always really clear. And so some of these things that we have in the scriptures where you have one passage says 800, another passage says 300, I am not a Hebrew scholar by any means, but just looking at, and you can just do a Google search of Hebrew numbers, and you can see the similarities between numbers like the number three and the number eight. And so perhaps when somebody was translating uh, the, the scriptures, they looked at that and they thought it was a three and it was an eight, or they thought it was an eight and it was a three. And so a mistake was made in the the, the transcribing of that from, uh, from one language to another or from one copy to another. And people say, well, but that means that the Bible's full of contradictions. No, it just means that there are some human mistakes in some of our translations. And seeing that really bothered me for a long time. But think about if there weren't, God would be robbing us of our free will. Man has the ability to make mistakes when they copy things down, even when they copy a scripture. Sometimes people do that on purpose. How is that to be done? And what you're alluding to, Joe, just to if I can squeeze this in quickly, there are many places in the Bible where um, it, there's included something that someone said not by inspiration. Uh, whether it be records of his of uh, battles and numbers included in that, or whether it be Nebuchadnezzar uh, saying this or that, or whether it be Paul the apostle in Acts chapter twenty seven, there's an account of when Paul is a, a, a prisoner and he's on his way to Rome 
um, being taken there under the care or custody of a centurion and soldiers. And uh, there's the threat of, uh, of, uh, of bad sailing because of weather. And Paul is concerned. He says, Sirs, I, this is Acts 27, verse 10, I perceive that the voyage will be with injury and much loss, not only of the lading in the ship, but also of our lives. I perceive we're going to lose our lives. And then we come down to verse 22, and Paul says, uh, there shall be no loss of life among you, but only of the ship. Well, that's an obvious contradiction. First he said we're going to lose our lives, and then he said we're not. But what it is, it's an account of what was being said, and the first thing that Saul said, was, of, or Paul said, was of his own concern, his own, without revelation, his own fear that we're going to be uh, shipwrecked and we're going to, we're going to drown. We're going to lose our lives. And then uh, God speaks to him. An angel Lord appears to him and tells him what's going to happen. So the second time he's speaking by revelation. Excellent discussion today, guys. Our uh, time is up for today. I appreciate all the comments and I appreciate uh, the different discussions we're able to have. I hope to see you all next week, next Wednesday at three o'clock. Thank you, everybody. Thanks, everybody. Thank you.